We are turning to a passage that I'm really excited about it. It has its origin in a conversation I had right out in the lobby here. There was a guy in our church who came up to me and he's like, Jeff, I found this passage. Have you ever read this? And I had to confess, I don't remember ever reading that. And it's awesome and I think you'll enjoy it. But as a means of transition to the text, I want to tell you a story. Another story of humiliation on my part. Um, back in college, there was a night at Wheaton College when we were bored. Friday night, nothing to do. And one of our friends bound into the dorm room and he said, I know what we're doing tonight. And he was just shaking with excitement. And he said, we're going to the tower, to the very top of the Billy Graham Center. I'll show you a picture here. This is the historic Billy Graham Center. Maybe you've seen this building before. And there's a tower. I didn't even know that there was a way to get up there. Well, there is a way. And my friend said, someone has given me elaborate instructions on how to sneak into the tower of the Billy Graham. And, and I said, let's do it. And so we all put on black clothing so we could go under cover of night. And we went from bush to bush and went our way around behind the building. The instructions were that there's a particular door where the lock doesn't work very well. And if you jimmy it and shake it, you'll eventually get it to open. And we did, sure enough. And that door opened. The instructions that our leader had were to go through these back hallways, and there was a certain path to avert the security guard. And, you know, he's trying to catch people like us. And we were able to manage to get around his view. And he brought us to an elevator. We rode the elevator to the fourth floor. That's as high as you can go without a key. A key would allow you to go to the fifth floor. We didn't have the key. The elevator stopped at the fourth floor. And the guy says, now what we got to do is go through the hatch in the top of the elevator. I've seen this in movies, you know. But I didn't know that it actually had a hatch. It does. Sure enough, we took down this light structure and opened this hatch and hoisted each other up. And I stood on top of this elevator car and opened these doors to the fifth floor and climbed up into what then was an attic up on the fifth floor. Can you believe this? And then we went, and sure enough, there was a spiral staircase that led us up to an unfinished, sacred realm of the tower of the Billy Graham Center. And to my surprise, on this unfinished wall was all of this writing of students who had gone before us <laughs> to this sacred spot. Well, my buddy whips out a big marker and he said, we must join the sacred assembly who have gathered at this place and left their historic mark behind. And my friends, you know, had lines of poetry that came to mind or lyrics from a song or some saying. And when I got my marker, I was lacking creativity at the moment. I'm like, ah, I'll just sign my name. And so I wrote Jeff Griffin, you know. I'm not a very good criminal, am I? <laughs> Never crossed my mind that that was going to bite me. And uh, we left, snuck our way out, you know, high-fiving each other, thought we had been victorious. And many weeks passed, and I had really forgotten or wasn't no longer thinking about this great event, when I got in the mail a very special letter 
from the Dean of Students of Wheaton College. Dr. Sam Schallhammer wrote to me and he said, Jeff, we'd like to invite you, that's me, we'd like to invite you to a disciplinary committee meeting to discuss a certain occurrence of breaking and entering and vandalism. And my stomach dropped like a rock and I said, oh my, I am in big trouble. And my mind is swirling and my you know, whole body is just convulsing in terror as I awaited the date of this meeting. And the thing that was hardest for me is that I had never met this Dr. Sam Shellhammer. Never. I didn't know what kind of a person he was. My life is in his hands. As a guilty transgressor, I am at his mercy. And I started thinking, you know, what? I, there are different kinds of people. And I'm, I started thinking, Shellhammer, is he more shell or is he more hammer? You know what I mean? And, and let, let's talk about that for a moment. I got a shell here. I got a shell, and I have a hammer, all right? And if, if we can think about the different types of people, a shell is delicate and graceful and beautiful and pleasant, right? And a hammer is a swift and powerful executor of justice, you know, and and, and when you look at people, maybe you look at your parents. Some parents are, just have an inclination of being real lenient and graceful. And they say, come on, it's no big deal, right? Other parents are very strict disciplinarians. Lots of rules, lots of punishment. And I started thinking, this, this shell hammer dude, what is he like? Because I'm about to meet him face to face and I need to know. Here's a thought for you. You're about to meet a disciplinarian. Do you know who that is? Almighty God. You may be intending to pray this week. I hope you are. And as you approach him in prayer, let me remind you of something. You appear as a transgressor, as a sinner. You say, how do you know? Well, because the Bible says we all mess up. And because I've met a lot of you, and I know it to be true. And when you appear before God this week, you're going to say, hey, God, can we talk? And you're going to come having just violated, maybe that day, spoken to your wife with a lack of love, treated your children in a selfish manner, done something, said something at work that wasn't entirely true. You're going to come with sin. And as you say, hey, Lord, can we talk about my sin? You need to know his heart. What is God like? Is he more shell? Is he more hammer? It's a really, really important question. If we're going to meet with Almighty God, we need to know what his disposition, what his heart, what his personality is like. And this passage we're going to study together addresses that very matter. And I think you're going to be blessed by it. I'm reading out of 2 Samuel chapter 14. Remember, we got our new pew Bibles. I'd encourage you to grab one. Turn to page 313. 2 Samuel 14. I'm starting in verse 1. It says, Joab, son of Zeroah, knew that the king's heart longed 
for, for Absalom. I need to tell you who all these people are. The king is King David, all right? Joab is his military commander, one of his best friends. He knew that his heart longed for Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. And, and why is, is he longing for Absalom? Because Absalom has been banished. Uh, he's, he's been uh, fled the, the country as a fugitive, as one guilty of murder. Let me explain what happened. You see, the story behind the story is that David's family was a mess. David uh, had a son named Amnon, and Amnon fell in love or in lust with his sister, David's daughter uh, Tamar. And Amnon so lusted and longed and desired her sexually that he decided he couldn't deprive himself, and so he raped her. After raping his sister, David horribly messed up. You know, David was a king. He had to figure out where does grace and where does justice play. And David failed. His son, Amnon, was guilty of rape and he needed to be punished. And David, in this moment, abdicated leadership and did nothing. Well, Absalom looked at his sister being violated by his brother and his father's lack of doing anything. And after a point, Absalom says, I can't stand this. If my dad won't execute justice, I will. And so Absalom ordered some of the men under his command to get Amnon and kill him. And that's what happened. And now Absalom has to flee as a murderer. David longed for Absalom. He loved his son, but he was stuck. I don't know. I've, David would maybe admit, I'm not good at knowing when to show grace and when to show justice and how to handle things. And so David was feeling this tension and kind of doing nothing. And so Absalom remained banished. Joab, being a good friend of David, saw David's heart in anguish. And Joab decided to do something about it. Joab was a very cunning and uh, creative problem solver. Look at the next verse. Verse 2, so Joab sent someone to Tekoa, and he had a wise woman brought from there. So a wise woman from Tekoa. She's wise. She's also an amazing actor. He said to her, pretend that you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes. Don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. And then go to the king, that's King David. Go to him and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. Told her what to say. Next verse. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay honor to him. And she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I am a widow and my husband is dead and I, your servant, had two sons. My two sons got into a fight with each other out in a field, and there was no one there to break them up. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death too. 
and she is in great despair, and she uses this powerful phrase at the end of verse 7, they would put out the only burning coal that I have left. The woman's a good actor, huh? She's got passion, and she's evoking compassion when she compares her life to that of a fire. And she said, my pathetic fire is about to go out. She's making it all up, but she's delivering this convincingly. And all I have left is my one son, and he's like a coal, one little coal. And they're about to put him out too. David responds as a king with great compassion. And he says, the king said, I'm reading now in verse 8, the king said to the woman, Go home, and I will issue an order on your behalf. David says, I will issue a, a formal ruling that will protect the life of your remaining son so that he will not be executed for what he's done. David chooses to show grace to this woman. She shifts at this point into, she's no longer acting. She's now playing the role of the prophet and about to show David the inconsistency in his own ruling. And so, reading now in verse 13, she, she says, she says, when the king says this, that is, when he chooses to show grace to my son, when the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his own banished son. You see the inconsistency? She says, David, you're ready to show grace to my son who's a murderer, but yet you won't to your own. And then she says this verse that I want to spend some time with you. I, I believe that this verse is not Joab's words. I believe it's the wise woman. In fact, when it refers to her as wise, I think she was a woman connected to spiritual things. She understood the ways of God, the heart of God. And she uses verse 14 as a defense on why grace is right, because it reflects God's own heart. Let me read it to you. Like water, the woman says, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he desires or he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Isn't that cool? God devises ways. What is a banished person? A banished person is someone who is relationally distant because of an offense they have committed. Uh, isn't that us? God devises ways so that banished people can be brought back to him. Let's go through this verse together, shall we? The, the woman starts by saying, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered. This was an ancient proverb about death. Death is like water being spilled. It's, it's inevitable and irrevocable. When it happens, death happens, and, and you just can't stop it. All right? he, he talks about the, pure, the proverb about death, but then she goes on to say, so we must die. We must die. And, and, and I, I can't emphasize how significant the original language is here. So in order to see what Hebrew is translated, we must die, let's remove these lines to give us some room and put up here the, the mut tamut. Can we put some boxes around the repeating Hebrew lines here? The mut, Hebrew starts on the right and goes to the left. 
tamut. Mut means death. Die. So we die, die. So we die and die. And you say, well, that's weird. Why, why is it repeating die twice? Well, that's one of the ways that emphasis can be brought. And so the translator puts it, we must die. The must is how the translator is trying to convey the, the passion, the emphasis of it. But this is an unusual and curious way to talk about the punishment of death. Die, die. And the reason that's important is because the other place that that occurs is in Genesis 2. Let's uh, put up Genesis 2, verse uh, 17 for a moment. Do you remember? This is what God said in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He said, people, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. See the emphasis, certainly? What do you think that comes from? Moot, moot. It's the same unusual dual uh, statement about death. God said, trust me, I've given you freedom. Freedom represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, there are consequences. I am a just God. And if you eat of that fruit, the wages of sin is death, and you're going to die as a result. And so when she says, you know, God's brought death to all of us, we must die, she's referring back to God's justice, and she's saying, our God is a God who takes sin seriously. We all have violated his moral law, and our reaping the consequence of that rebellion. Another way of saying it is God is very just. His justice permeates his being and his leadership reflects his refusal to allow transgression to go unpunished. All right? But the verse says more than that. Let's go back to the uh, the totality of verse 14. These first couple lines talk about death and God's justice. But, it's an important word. There's a contrast here. But that is not what God desires, nor what it's pointing to is God's heart. Our God is not a, a God who just longs to let people have it. You know, there are some people who are find joy, you know, in punishing others. That's not God's heart. What does God desire? Rather, he devises ways so that banished persons will not remain banished from him. Isn't that beautiful tension in the very nature of God? One, death will come. You know, he will punish. Sin's a big deal. But though God's justice demands punishment, his heart desires mercy. His heart longs to show grace. And what do you do when you've got a justice that demands punishment and you've got a heart that desires mercy? What do you do? you got to get creative. I, I love this verse. He devises. Uh, devising is God's strategic creativity. God thinking this way. God's saying, there's got to be ways that I can do both that I can both execute my justice and show the mercy I desire. 
There's got to be ways that I can provide forgiveness without violating justice. And God's behavior in the lives of all of us demonstrate these ways God's devising. But there's one thing that he did that stands as the pinnacle of his devising. There's one way he devised that rises above them all, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, we see God's death is the punishment for sin. And at the same time, we see the Lord devising a way that he can show grace and bring people back to him. You see, in the cross of Christ, we see God piling the sins of the world on himself. Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. And the Bible says that all of the guilt of humanity was transferred to his shoulders. And in Christ's death, justice is served. We must die. Jesus says, let me do it on your behalf. And so when we look at the cross, we see the justice of God on full display. But we also see the grace of God on full display because through him, we, the banished ones, can return. And so when we look at this passage and say, what is our God like? The, the answer is yes, he is just, but he's amazingly gracious. Isn't it hard and for one to demonstrate both? Yeah, but God has figured out how to do it. And in every interaction with God, we interact with a God who is both passionately just and amazingly gracious. You say, Jeff, what happened to you with your, uh, your meeting with the disciplinary committee? You thought I was going to skip over that, didn't you? No, I'm coming back. Come back. With great trembling, I walked into that meeting, and here was this big, long board table, boardroom table, and Dr. Shellhammer as at the end of it. And I was invited to sit at the other end and these other members of the committee, all wearing suit and tie, are all sitting there, you know, and my knees are knocking as I sit down. Yeah, I, and one of them came over with a photograph of my signature on a certain wall. And he slid it in front of me and he said, what can you tell us about that? And I said, this was a bad idea. I said, on the night in question, I made a decision to do something that sounded really fun, but upon much chance to reflect on the decision, I've decided it was really foolish, and I really regret it. This is my signature. I wrote it, and all I can tell you is that I'm very sorry. It's clear to me now it was a bad idea. And Dr. Shellhammer leaned forward. He goes, Jeff Griffin, do you realize we could call the cops right now and have you arrested for breaking and entering and for vandalism? He says, this is grounds for dismissal from this school. And I'm like, oh boy. He then shifted. He says, but we are a Christian institution. And as Christians, we tend to be fond of the concept of grace. He says, your, your remorse and repentance seem genuine. 
So I have decided to show you grace. You can leave. Everything's okay. I can just tell you, I love grace. Can I just say, I love grace. And when I meet with God, I love grace. And when you meet with God this week, which I hope you do, and you bring your sin and he slides it in front of you and he says, hey, can we talk about this? We need to take into account God's justice and grace. If we laugh about it and just say, oh, yeah, can you believe I said that? (laughs) You know what? It's no laughing matter to God. Sin's a big deal. Jesus went to the cross because of that sin. Our remorse must be genuine. As we bring our sin this week to God, we need to say, God, this was really foolish. And I am sorry. In response to the passionate justice of God, our remorse must be genuine and our treatment of sin sober. But then, to know of God's grace, that upon our repentance, God looks us in the eye and says, you know, this kingdom that you're a part of, we're fond of grace. And Christ has died for you. And you are forgiven. And you can walk away from your prayer time with a bounce in your step and a song in your heart and guilt removed because you have tasted and basked in the ever, never-ending love of God. You are still his precious daughter, his son, and he's wiped it away. It's gone. You're good. The heart of the king. David didn't get it right. He didn't know how to be a king. But the king of kings, he got it right every time. You know, it dawns on me that some of you may even wonder if you're a Christian. You'd say you're a Christian, but the truth is you're not exactly sure why you'd say you're a Christian other than you call yourself one. The Bible says that you become a Christian by having a moment like I did around that table. You come to God in a formal moment of confession and say, Lord, I am a sinner in need of your grace and I've come to request it. The Bible says, unless you come to God and cry out for the grace that's offered through the cross of Christ, it doesn't matter what you call yourself until you've had that formal moment of repentance and faith, you're not truly saved. And so in this closing prayer, I'd like to provide an opportunity for you to do that. You say, really? All I got to do is like silently pray along with you? Well, your heart's got to be in it. But God's sitting at the other end of the table, and he's really interested in what you have to say. And if you look him in the eyes, because he's looking your way, And you tell him, I'm sorry, God. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, forgive me. You're my only hope. I want to follow you. In that moment, you will be washed clean, brought into God's family. The banished will be brought home in that moment. So let's provide that moment right now. Would you bow with me? And if you want to cry out to God in that way, please do. Lord, we want to humbly recognize we are not morally impressive. We are sinners. We recognize it. We confess it. 
we realize it's a big deal. We, wanna, we don't want to minimize it, justify it, explain it away. We have violated your moral law more times than we can even remember. And we know that's a big deal. We're here to own it and tell you we are sorry. Would you forgive us? Please, God. Give us what we don't deserve, and that is grace. Please, by the blood of Christ, wash away our sin and make us clean again. Though we're banished, we want to come home. Would you please, Lord, take us home. Make us part of your family, both today and for all eternity. Jesus, thank you for your grace. In his name we pray, amen.